This is the Austin Life Church podcast. For more information, please visit us at austinlifechurch.com. Good evening, Austin Life Church. How are we doing tonight? It is good to be here with you all tonight. Uh, such an honor and a privilege to be here. My name is Stephen Crawford, as he said. I'm one of the pastors at the Austin Stone Community Church at the St. John campus. And it's a privilege to be here because I know that we kind of have a bit of a relationship, um, especially at my campus. You guys uh, used to meet there and gather there as you guys were in infancy and getting launched out. And so it is a, it is a, a privilege to be able to see what God's doing here at Austin Life Church, getting to meet Mike, hear about how you guys are getting started, and, and the Lord is uh, at work among you guys. You guys are a beautiful church, and uh, so it's a, it's a pleasure and honor to be here with you tonight. I'm here with my wife, Taylor, and my little rambunctious, rowdy son, Knox, here in the front row. So if you see him later, you can say hi to them. Um, I'm going to be here with us tonight and uh, next week. And so this week and next, we're going to be looking at uh, what is after you becoming a Christian, what is God's greatest concern for your life right now? So outside of you being born again, being converted to Christ, becoming a follower of Jesus, giving your life to him like we just sang about, what we're going to be talking about for the next few weeks is at the very top of God's list of concerns for your life. And I'm talking about spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity. That's what I'm talking about. Now, why do I say that this is God's greatest concern for your life right now as a believer? Well, almost two years ago, uh, I became a father to my son, Knox, here in the front row, and about to have a baby girl here in May, so pray for me. Uh, but what you don't know is that it took my wife and I uh, about three years to get pregnant. We, we went through a period of infertility. It was painful. It was difficult. Uh, and, and lo and behold, um, God gave us a son. But there was a season of Taylor and I's life where our greatest concern— the, the greatest dream, the greatest prayer and hope that we had was to get pregnant and start our family. And lo and behold, God answered that prayer and so that we had Knox, our son. And so now there's, there's obviously a lot of joy in that in our home. But now our focus, our concern now as parents has completely changed. We got the child. Amen. And now Taylor and I are completely consumed now with raising this kid. Right? making sure that he matures, that he grows up and hits all the stages that he's supposed to hit now. If you're here tonight, it's likely because God has done a work in your life to open your eyes and give you a new heart. Jesus calls this being born again. The scripture calls this being converted. You've been given a new heart, a heart of flesh. You've died to your old self, and, and you've been raised to new life through Jesus Christ. We rejoice in that as a church we rejoice in that as Christians, as a church family. It's a miracle what God has done to open your eyes to the truth and to believe and trust in Jesus. But if you're a Christian here in the room tonight, I've got a news flash for you. God's greatest concern for you is not that you would keep having to be born again, that you'd keep having to have, have to walk through what it means to be a Christian. That would be silly. You're already his kid, right? God's greatest concern for you is that you would grow. So that you would grow, that you would mature in him, that you would grow in your knowledge of the gospel, 
God's greatest concern for you, Christian, is for your spiritual maturity. And so just like my son, Knox, who's going to have to learn literally everything that it means to be a man, we as new creations in Christ must grow up in him. We must work and learn and develop and grow into spiritual maturity now that we have been reborn. This is what it means to be a Christian and to live out the Christian life. And it's God's greatest concern for your life right now. And it's God's greatest concern for your church. Uh, I, years ago, I um, was a part of a small church plant, like as I was talking to a few of you before, uh, before the service started. This is a very familiar scene for me. Uh, for, for three years, I was in the Woodlands, Texas, at a, a fledgling church plant that had just gotten off the ground. And I can remember, just like I'm looking out right here, there weren't a lot of gray and balding heads in the room uh, at my young church plant, just like there are here. There are a couple, I see, I'm not going to call you out, but praise God for you. Uh, what that means is, is that just by the nature of your youth as a church, you are lacking in a very necessary component for a thriving church, and that is wisdom. And so we, we pray and ask, we need spiritual maturity in our churches if they're going to be healthy. And so that's what I hope uh, to, to, to help uh, you guys think through in the next couple weeks as we spend some time in the Word together and as we think about this together as a church, uh, ask, asking the Lord to grow us a little bit. For many of us, this can be a scary thought, uh, going beyond what's become normal and comfortable to us and growing beyond the boundaries and the habits that we kind of set for ourselves. It's hard, Right? But here's the good news. As we look at this over the next couple of weeks, here's what I want us to all walk away with as we talk about spiritual maturity. God has not left you to mature on your own. God has not left you to grow up by yourselves. We're not orphans. We're not left without help in this. God is going to work out spiritual maturity in you. Spiritual maturity is God's work in ours. It's God's work in ours. It's God working in you by his grace and power as you work and strive and stretch and take active steps toward owning your spiritual maturity as a believer in Christ. And so we're going to be spending tonight and next week kind of unpacking that reality in the Christian life. God's work in ours. So if you've got a Bible with you, go ahead and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible with you, I'm sure they would love to put a Bible in your hands. Uh, they, they might have some there. The back table looks like, so if you need one, you can get one there. Uh, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 5. This is where we're going to mainly be camping out uh, this week and next as we look at spiritual maturity, but we're also going to be kind of in some other places as well because this is such a pervasive topic in the scriptures. And so as you're turning there to Hebrews chapter 5, uh, a couple things to understand really quickly about the book of Hebrews uh, no one really knows who wrote the book of Hebrews. It uh, doesn't have a name uh, at, the, at the beginning of it like other New Testament letters do. And so part of the reason for that is because Hebrews likely was written originally as a sermon manuscript. So I'm, I'm preaching here from a sermon manuscript. I've got notes in front of me. And that's likely what the book of Hebrews is. And there's a few reasons we know this. If you were to read the book of Hebrews out loud, like I'm, like I'm reading, it to, reading right now to you or speaking to you right now, it would take you about 45 minutes to an hour to read through the entire book of Hebrews at a normal pace of speaking, which is about how long a lot of sermons were, we know. Uh, the, other, the other thing we see is that he refers often to his audience in the, in the book of Hebrews as hearers or, or listeners. 
people who are hearing what is being said in the book of Hebrews. And, and we also see at the end of the book of Hebrews, he refers to the writing of Hebrews itself as a word of exhortation, which we know was another way of just saying it was a sermon. It was a, a word of exhortation given to the people of God. So what the writer of Hebrews has been unpacking here prior to this passage that we're about to look at is a lot of very dense and very complex explanations of the person of Jesus Christ and his high priestly office that we see unfolding in the New Testament that we're not going to get into in the next couple weeks. But in the middle of that discussion uh, about Jesus and who he is and how he fulfills all these things in the Old Testament law, in the middle of that discussion, he pulls away for a few paragraphs to kind of discuss with them the spiritual state of his hearers. He, he, he discusses the spiritual maturity of his hearers. And we're going to see what we have to learn from this as we look at it. Hebrews chapter 5, starting in verse 11 is where we're going to be. This is the word of the Lord. It says, About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment." And this we will do if God permits. Now, here's what the writer of Hebrews just said regarding spiritual maturity in, in one sentence. And this is what we're going to be unpacking for the next two weeks from this passage. You ready for this? This is one sentence summary of what he just said. Spiritual maturity is God's commitment to grant us powers of discernment to distinguish good from evil through our constant training and practice. I'm going to say it again. Spiritual maturity is God's commitment to grant us powers of discernment to distinguish good from evil through our constant training and practice. Or to make that even shorter for you, you can maybe tweet something out that's even shorter than that. Uh, spiritual maturity is God's work in ours. Spiritual maturity is God's work in ours. Uh, but before we get to that, before we dig into the, the, the definition there that we see in, in, in Hebrews unfolding, we need to first see what the writer of Hebrews is addressing in his hearers. What is he seeing in his hearers that causes him to kind of pull away here and give us this exhortation about spiritual maturity? And as we look into this, my, my hope is that the Lord will begin to convict us as he has me and, and, and open our eyes to areas of, of immaturity in us. And this first week here is kind of intended to be a little bit of allowing God's word to, to break up some of the soil of our hearts a little bit. And we'll come back next week and kind of fill in some of that. So what, what he's doing here at the beginning is he is diagnosing spiritual immaturity. He's diagnosing spiritual immaturity. And so as we begin our series, you're looking at spiritual maturity. We first need to identify what, what God says in his word is immaturity. We need to know what immaturity is. So what does spiritual immaturity look like, and how do we diagnose it? And what the writer of Hebrews identifies here is three main areas of immaturity, three main areas of spiritual immaturity, three main diagnoses that he sees here in his hearers. The, the first one that he says for us 
is he says that they have become dull of hearing. They become dull of hearing. So verse 11, look at this with me. He says, about this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Now, we need to talk for a second about verb tenses, right? I know you all are excited to hear about that. Uh, verb tenses are super important, though, right, in understanding a, a, a sentence's meaning. In fact, uh, depending on what the verb tense is, it can completely change the meaning of a sentence. It's sort of like commas, how they work in a sentence, right? So in the sentence, let's eat, Grandma, depending on whether there's a comma there, uh, you're either inviting Grandma to eat or Grandma is on the menu, right? So... The same is true when understanding verb tenses in a sentence, okay? So in verse 11, the writer is, is telling us that his hearers here are dull of hearing, meaning they're still sitting there, and they're hearing truth, they're hearing God's word taught, they've heard the sermons, they've memorized all the worship songs, but they aren't really listening to God's word. It isn't continuing to, to change them. They aren't prayerfully digesting it, taking it to heart, considering what God might be saying to them and responding in faith and obedience. But the verb tense here that he uses is, is key to our understanding of the sentence. He doesn't simply say that they just are dull of hearing. No, that would imply that that, that, that might have been their natural state from the get-go as a people. From the day they showed up, they had a hard time understanding and hearing the truth of God and having it penetrate their hearts. No, that's not what he says. He uses a verb tense here that implies that they at one point in time were responsive and they were receptive to God's word to them. They, they were at one point in time hungry and eager to hear from God and to walk with him that they might find life in his word. But, he says, they have since become dull in hearing. You see that? And he says to them in this that there is so much more truth so much more for them to understand and love about God and love about Christ and his gospel that they might be even further transformed, but they're missing out on it. They're missing out on it. So what about you? Could, could this be said of any of us tonight here at Austin Life Church? You know, as a young church like this, uh, as I just see you, and I actually know some of you, which is just great to see, um, what many of us are, are in what's known as the... Uh, the sophomore season of life. You know what I'm talking about? The sophomore year of life. You know, we, we had our freshman season, if you know what I'm talking about. We grew up, we learned a bunch of things like how to walk and eat and talk and read and think and interact socially, all that kind of stuff. Some of us better than others, I get that. But now, many of us in here tonight, as I look out at you, we're, we're in our sophomore year of life. We're in our sophomore season of life. We're, we're not freshmen anymore, really. We've, we've moved past some things. We're on to some other major life things like living by ourselves, paying rent, finding and keeping a job, finding a spouse, having kids, starting a family, those kinds of things. Now, you want to know what the word sophomore means? Wise fool. Wise fool. Sopho comes from the Greek root for wisdom. More comes from the Greek root for foolish. It's where we get the word moron from. Now, before you all get mad and think that I just called you all morons, uh, I don't know you, so who am I, right? Uh, understand that I'm, I'm in the same season of life, right? I'm, I'm 32 years old. I'm not old. And, and what, is, what is common to us, what I've found is common to us in this season of life, this sophomore season, and, and the reason why I think that, that the second year, the second season has historically been dubbed the, the sophomore year, the year of the wise fool, is because 
there is a tendency in all of us who've learned a little. We've, we've, we've grown a little. We, we've gone through a, a season of significant growth and change and development to then in the next season just kind of sort of sit and bask in all of the infinite wisdom that we've all just acquired, right? And thus, we close ourselves off to further learning and further growth in this time. But there's a tendency for those of us who've grown a little in your, your spiritual life, you, you've grown a little bit in your understanding of life to become wise fools, become dull of hearing, as the verse says. We have so much more to learn, though, that's what the verse says. So much more wisdom needs to be imparted to us, but we can't receive it because we're no longer hearing. We're no longer asking for it. Friends, I guarantee you that your pastors and your leaders here at Austin Life Church have so much more that they want to teach, that they want to explain to you, so much more that they could say to you that would strengthen you and benefit you spiritually. But could it be that, like the writer of Hebrews here, they aren't saying it, they're holding back because you've become dull of hearing? You aren't able to receive it because you aren't really listening anymore. The problem, you see, is, is within the hearers, the writer of Hebrews says here, that they aren't able to even receive it because they have become dull in hearing. That's the first diagnosis of spiritual immaturity that he gives us here about his hearers. So have you become dull of hearing, Christian? What the writer of Hebrews is telling us tonight is that if you have, then you will not, indeed you cannot, mature. Your spiritual maturity will be forever stunted. Spiritually mature, immature people, in other words, aren't teachable. They're not teachable. They don't have a, a teachable spirit. So, so what about you? Are you a teachable person, would you say? What, would the people around you who know you best, would they consider you a, a teachable person? Do you, do you ask people questions anymore? Or do you just assume you know? How do you respond to correction or, or criticism, even if it's slight? One of the only stories that we have in the gospel accounts about Jesus as a youth shows us that, first and foremost, Jesus himself was teachable. Now, we often don't think of Jesus, our Lord, as being a teachable person because, for crying out loud, he's God in the flesh, right? He's the Savior of all mankind. And because of this, we don't often associate Jesus with being teachable, and yet, what we see is he was. As the only sinless person to ever live, Jesus perfectly shows us what it looks like to mature. So if you want to turn with me to Luke chapter 2, keep your finger in, in Hebrews chapter 5 real quick. Flip over to Luke chapter 2. I'm going to see a, a real familiar story here to many of us maybe. Luke chapter 2 verse 41. Look at this with me. He says, Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. When the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, and, but then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. Now, this is a familiar story maybe to some of you. Jesus, they go to Jerusalem. Jesus kind of hangs behind, but everyone goes on to go back home, and the parents are freaking out, and they're like, where is Jesus? Did we leave him back in Jerusalem? So they turn, they leave the group, they go back to get him. But look with me at what, what Luke tells us that in the next verse, Jesus was found doing when Mary and Joseph found him. Verse 46, look at this with me. It says, after three days of searching for him, they found him in the temple, 
sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Now, what was Jesus doing when they found him? He was sitting among the teachers. He was listening to them, asking them questions. Does that amaze you when you read that? That our Jesus, God in the flesh, would sit listening to these mere men teach him about the law, some of whom these guys would be guys that he would later argue with about things like the Sabbath and, and healings and his very identity as the Son of God. He's listening to these men teach about the law that he himself wrote with his own finger and then would even to subject himself, himself to asking them questions about its meaning. I mean, when I, when I think about that for a second, it, it completely astounds me to see Jesus doing that. But it shouldn't is the thing. And I think the reason that, that may be hard for, for some of us to imagine Jesus doing this is because many of us believe, wrongly I think, that maturity means that you no longer have to learn things. You no longer have to learn. You no longer have to be taught. You're always the one to talk. You never listen. You never ask questions. But if Jesus was perfectly sinless and was also fully human, like, like you and like me, that means that he, like us, had to mature spiritually. And the way that Jesus, we learn, grew and increased in wisdom and in favor with God and man, as Luke tells us, was by being a teachable person as he matured, letting people, even broken people, speak into his life and teach him about the things of God, asking questions, searching God's truth eagerly and endlessly. People who are dull of hearing, as Hebrews says here, are not teachable, and thus they, they cannot mature. They cannot. That's the first diagnosis he gives. The second thing that the writer of Hebrews tells us here, the second diagnosis he gives here about his hearers, is he says that by this point in their spiritual lives, they ought to be teachers, but instead they still need someone to teach them. He says, look at verse 12 with me, Hebrews chapter 5. He says, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. Now this church, if I can just be real with you for a second, this is an epidemic in the American modern church. There are people who spend an entire lifetime going through every Bible study, every discipleship program. They sit through decades of sermons and teachings. They listen to every conference and famous preacher's podcast, and you see very little impact of this on the people around them that they do life with. We as 21st century Americans, let me just, let me just lay this out to you real quick. We as 21st century Americans, are, we, we are among the most privileged people who have ever lived when it comes to theological education and resources. You likely, I'm just guessing, you likely know more about the Bible than most Christians who have ever lived on planet Earth. And if you don't, then you definitely have more access to good theological and biblical resources than anyone who has ever lived in Christian history. Do you realize this? Now, please don't misunderstand me here. I, of all people, am the first to commend to you regularly sitting under good teaching as a regular practice, regularly reading good books, regularly taking opportunities to learn, to get developed, and get taught God's Word, reading things, and, and developing a healthy and thoughtful approach to the Christian life and Christian worldview and theology, all that. I'm in seminary. I get it. That's part of the normal Christian life is learning, growing, being taught. Some of you, the writer of Hebrews says here, you need to continue 
to sit under more teaching, more instruction, more discipleship. That's a good and healthy thing for you to be doing right now at this point in your spiritual life. When a baby is born, it is good and healthy for a baby to drink milk. We would never even think of trying to give a baby a steak or a loaf of bread, right? Let alone expect him to feed himself or feed others. Some of you, you may be a, a physically mature person. You're 25, 30, 35, 40 years old, maybe. But you've only been a disciple of Jesus for a year, maybe. Or you've only recently become aware of your need for Christ and you're trying to figure out what that means in your life. You're still getting your spiritual bearings. That's awesome. Praise God for that. I, I want to be clear, that's not what we're talking about when we're talking about spiritual immaturity tonight. That's just being a new Christian. That's what that is. If you're a newer Christian tonight, keep getting fed. Keep growing, learn, struggle, process the basic truths of the gospel. There's total freedom for you to do that here in, in this place, in, in Austin Life Church. This is the best place for you to grow and, and, and be taught these things as a Christian. But here's what the writer of Hebrews is saying to us about spiritual maturity. He's saying that spiritually mature people work to mature people spiritually. Spiritually mature people work to mature people spiritually. One way you can know and gauge your spiritual maturity level is by how active and engaged you are in seeking to care and aid in the growth of other people around you in your life. I mean, how committed are you to the, the spiritual growth and discipleship and development of the people in your community group or your discipleship group? How, how much time do you spend thinking about your needs and getting your desires met versus thinking about meeting the spiritual needs of other members here at your church. This, the writer of Hebrews says, is one of the main marks of a spiritually mature person. They're not, they're not spiritual individualist consumers anymore. They spend more and more time thinking about and concerned about the spiritual maturity of other people, and they begin to take active measures to invest in other people, not just their own life and their own needs. That's the second diagnosis he gives us. The third and last diagnosis he gives us here about his hearers, he says that they are unskilled in the word of righteousness. They're unskilled in the word of righteousness. So verse 12 again, he says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. So let's just review here. <laughs> He tells us that spiritually immature people are, number one, dull of hearing. Number two, they ought to be teachers, but instead they need to be taught again the basic truths. And lastly, he says spiritually immature people are like children. Ouch, right? It's starting to sting a little bit here. I wonder if anyone left this guy's church after he preached this sermon. He calls them children here, lastly. And while that may sound to us to be insulting or demeaning, the reality is it's not insulting to call children children. It's not. In fact, we should call children children. And a, and a spiritually immature person, or a child, as he says here, is a person, he says, who is unskilled in the word of righteousness. Unskilled in the word of righteousness. Now, what does that mean? It means you're unable to take in truth from God's word. You're, you're, you're unable to, to take in truth from reading the scriptures or hearing a sermon or from a friend and then actually begin to apply it into your life such that it results in practical righteousness. 
or practical obedience that is observable. During Taylor's pregnancy with Knox, uh, we were getting, of course, the, the baby room already uh, fixed up and prepared and put together for when he arrives on the scene. It's very important. Nesting is a very important thing uh, for pregnant women. And, uh, of course, you're, you're, you're just doing everything you can to get the room ready, but he ends up sleeping in your room for the first six months, so the rush was all for naught. Uh, but what that means is when you're getting the room ready for this baby to come in your life, uh, for those of you who don't know, that means that you just end up spending an absurd amount of time in the satanic demon labyrinth known as Ikea. Um, I, I, I seriously feel like every time I go in there um, that there's, there's got to be like some small Swedish man like up in an upper room like wearing a goat head just with a sick grin on his face as he watches all these people just kind of find their way around senselessly in this horrible place. They do have amazing ice cream, though, so I guess that's how Satan gets you uh, with the ice cream. And it's only a buck, so that's uh, some free advice there. Anyway, we, we bought a lot of stuff from Ikea, okay? Got to do that. Parenting 101. Buy stuff from Ikea. Got a crib, got shelves, got a dresser, all this stuff. And guess who has to put it all together? Me. Seriously, what is up with the names of these things, right? Can we talk about that for a second? I mean... <laughs> Dishford, Lenscharna, like what, what, how do you pronounce these things? So let me just, let me just tell you right here, I am unskilled in the word of Ikea, okay? I am, I am unskilled in the wor- word of Ikea, maybe you can relate. I open up these instructions that they give you, and I spend about two hours just trying to decipher what kind of tools I'm supposed to need. Well, you got this little smiling stick figure guy who's just mocking you the whole time as you're trying to read this, these things. So you're, you're, you're trying to understand what's in this thing, and I, I can't even understand how to put this thing together. And then I'm, of course, getting on YouTube, spending the rest of my time trying to be walked slowly, step by step, through how to put whatever it is I'm putting together. I, I, I need someone to show me and walk me through every single step of how to put these things together. I am unskilled in the word of Ikea. I'm unable to, to take in the instructions that Ikea gives me and actually apply that into building a crib or a dresser or a lenscharna, okay? Some of you are like this with the scriptures. Some of you, you, you read it, you hear it taught to you, but it's not really translating itself into your life as practical righteousness or practical obedience in any observable way. It just sounds like random words strung together, right? And you have a hard time getting meaning out of it as you try to read it. I mean, Jebusites, circumcision, how am I supposed to apply that? And like a child, and I, and I don't mean that in a demeaning way at all, nor, I, nor does the writer of Hebrews, I don't think, but like a child, you actually need to be told, step by step, how the truth of God's word actually should be applied and translated into you obeying God in practical righteousness. And I want you to hear me right now loud and clear if that's you, okay? That is okay. That's okay if that's you. Just like we would never fault a third grader for not understanding calculus, It's no fault of a spiritual child to need the scriptures and basic obedience explained step by step in basic terms. Just have some spiritual awareness about that. That's okay. You don't need to prove anything here. But if I can, there's another side to this, and and here's where this gets problematic, I think. When people who have walked with Jesus long enough 
You've sat through enough teaching, enough explaining. You've rehashed the basics over and over and over again about what it means to love and obey Jesus and to listen to his word. But yet you're still unable to live out practically what the Bible calls us to do. And you're still totally comfortable with that. And you're just kind of fine just sitting in that stage of maturity for your entire Christian life. And what I want us to understand tonight as we begin this talks on maturity, we examine God's work in our spiritual maturity and our work that we do in spiritual maturity, is that not only is that an incredibly disturbing thought that you'd feel comfortable just kind of sitting in the third grade and never growing past that point, but it's also really sad for a Christian to never mature, to never grow and never realize the incredible joys of being mature in Christ. You miss out on so many manifold joys that the Lord offers us in spiritual maturing. The original writing of the story of Peter Pan was uh, a book called Peter and Wendy. It was written by a Scottish author back in 1911 named J.M. Berries. And uh, it wasn't written originally as the uh, kind of fun cartoon Disney version that you might have seen. It certainly wasn't Hook, though what an incredible film, right? Rufio, so cool. It was actually originally meant to be read as a dystopian story, originally. That's how it was written. It's a sad and disturbing tale of a young boy who ought to be mature, who's lived for decades, and yet he never matures past his childhood. And the author actually describes Peter in the story as being a child who still has all of his baby teeth. That's how he describes him. Now, at first, we're, we're brought into Peter's world of games and laughing and adventure and fighting pirates with the Lost Boys and creating mischief, and it's all cutesy and harmless and fun. But as the story progresses, you start to see that Peter really isn't capable of considering anything or anyone outside of his little world that he lives in with a population of one himself. Everyone is expendable in his life. Everyone and everything exists to serve his immediate needs and desires. And at the end, we see a very sad and telling exchange between him and Wendy, his little childhood crush, years after their, their first adventures in Neverland. I want to read this to you. Listen to this excerpt. So she flew away with Peter in the frock that she had woven from leaves and berries in, in Neverland. And her one fear was that he might notice how short it had become, but he never noticed. He had so much to say about himself. She had looked forward to thrilling talks with him about old times, but new adventures had crowded out the old ones from his mind. Who is Captain Hook? He asked with interest when she spoke of the arch enemy. Don't you remember? She asked, amazed, how you killed him and saved all of our lives? I forget them after I kill them, he replied carelessly. When she expressed a, a doubtful hope that Tinkerbell would be glad to see her, he said, who is Tinkerbell? Oh, Peter, she said, shocked. But even when she explained, he could not remember. Peter's persistent immaturity kept him from seeing anything or anyone other than what was right in front of him, immediately in front of him. And as a result... He was both unaware of the destruction that he had caused 
And he was unaware of the joys that were available to him in growing up. Wendy goes on to grow up, we learn. She enjoys marriage and family and children. Toodles, who's one of the lost boys, he, he eventually leaves Neverland and grows up and becomes a judge. He gets to enact justice and help society and do good for other people. Everyone in the story, we learn, is growing up and living happy and productive lives in their maturity. And Peter, all the while, remains the exact same. He's still enjoying the same childish fun and games. He's crying whenever things don't go his way. And because Peter refuses to grow up along with everyone else, everyone eventually just forgets about him. Peter is still a small child here, even at the end. He's still got all his baby teeth. He had killed people. He killed people, and yet what does he say about it? I forget them after I kill them. What a chilling response. And then at the, at the mention of his best friend, Tinkerbell, he carelessly asks, who's Tinkerbell? This is, this is his best friend in the story. What this story shows us is that it's the same thing that the writer of Hebrews is showing us here. It's fine to be a child, it is. It's fine to be a spiritual child, but it is sad and destructive to remain as one. It is good and right for children to be children, but remaining as a child for one day longer than you should is perilous, both to your joy and to those around you. When I think back about my life as a Christian, I'm talking about after I became a Christian, post-conversion, right? talking about after I experienced rebirth and the filling of the Holy Spirit, I had committed myself to Christ. But I, I think back of my life as a Christian previous years, some of the most miserable times in my life, both personally and to those around me who could attest, were when I persisted in spiritual immaturity. I'm talking about dating relationships that I had, where I selfishly treated these women, these sisters in the Lord, as a means to my own comfort and amusement. I'm talking about the harsh and harmful things that I have said to people jokingly, just trying to get a cheap laugh and make me look funny. I'm talking about the years that I spent in laziness in college, avoiding church community, being just totally fixated on my life, my problems, my dreams, my pursuits. I was so destructive in my spiritual immaturity, both to myself and to others around me, and I couldn't even see it like Peter Pan. Fun-loving, carefree at first, but once you spend some time with me, my persistent spiritual immaturity, my refusal to be teachable, my unwillingness to invest in and care for others around me when I could have, my inability to practically obey God's word in my life, it hurt people. It hurt people. That's what spiritual immaturity does. Like Peter Pan, it carelessly and indiscriminately hurts both yourself and others over time. A spiritually immature person is a weapon of mass destruction to relationships and to marriages and to families and to young churches. Some of you have suffered yourself under spiritually immature people. You know what I'm talking about. Some of you are suffering currently under spiritually immature people right now. But as we're going to see, friends, there is hope. There is hope. That's why I'm here. There is hope for us. God refuses to leave you in your spiritual immaturity. He does. He refuses to leave you there. And if you're sitting there realizing to yourself that, like me, your spiritual immaturity is carelessly and indiscriminately hurting others, 
and keeping you from joy, we have hope in this. If you are in Christ tonight, if you are His tonight, then you are God's child. You are God's very own child. That's why I said at the very beginning that after your spiritual rebirth, after you being born again, converted, God's greatest concern for your life is your spiritual maturity. Because if you've never been born again, sorry, if you've been born again, you've been born into his family. That's what that means. Being born again in the spirit means being born into the family of God. And God graciously will not allow his kids to go on in persistent, destructive, and joyless immaturity. That's his commitment to us as a good and gracious and kind father. His kindness leads you to repentance. That's what the scripture teaches us. And so the question we close with tonight is simply this. Are you his? Are you his child tonight? Have you trusted in Jesus Christ? His death on the cross for sin is a payment for your sin, for your failure, even sins committed in immaturity. And his resurrection from the dead, granting us the promise of a new life, being new creations. If you have, then that means that you have been born again. God's spirit, the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead, dwells in you and will lead you into all truth. That's what he does. And you've been adopted into the family of God. God, your father, is passionately committed to finishing the work that he started in you. So take hope tonight, Christian, in this. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come to you tonight just asking, Lord, that you would do a work in us that would create an awareness of our need for you, an awareness of the, the places and the times and the ways that we have fallen short of your glory. We've fallen short of your righteous requirement because you are holy. And that you would again come to us again, Lord, and, and, and remind us that we are yours. That through the cross of Jesus Christ, through his death for sin, through his resurrection from the dead, we have assurance that we are his. God, I pray tonight that if there's anyone in here that does not believe that right now, God, that you would come to their aid, you would open their eyes, that you'd help them, Lord, to see that your kindness, your kindness leads them to repentance and change. That's your commitment to us, Lord. We believe that. We're asking, Lord, that you would change us. You would do what you promised you would do, finishing the work that you started in us as your children when you brought us forth from death to life. And so, God, we pray for, for maturity. I pray for maturity in myself, for, for my friends here, for Austin Life Church. God, would you grow us, Lord, into your image so that we would bring glory and honor to you and so that our city would know that there is a Savior who has come bringing hope and life in the gospel. And he can bring dead people to life and he can bring immature people into maturity for his name's sake. And so we pray in that name tonight. Amen. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to the Austin Life Church Podcast. 
To help support us, please take a second to rate and review us on iTunes and visit us at austinlifechurch.com.